Okay, um, now, those of you who are here first thing this morning, <clears throat> are you appropriately depressed? <laughs> are you feeling a little overwhelmed and challenged? <laughs> I don't have all the answers, okay? This is a huge... Um, a huge thing. If I were not convinced that it remains the work for this time, I wouldn't even bring it up. But it remains the work for this time. Until we learn this and we get it right, thinking we're taking the gospel to the whole world is fantasy land. That's the way I'm reading it at the, point, at the moment, anyhow. The very worst evil can come upon the churches when we think we're doing something that's going to finish the work when it has no chance of finishing the work because it's not properly portraying the character of God which is done through benevolence okay so sorry for the uh, momentary depression just keep smiling you know <laughs> I'm enjoying myself I hope you're you know, feeling tolerable about it our last session here is hopefully intended to leave you feeling more hopeful okay uh, picking up the pieces learn the lessons get it right somebody's going to do that whether I live long enough to see it I have no idea you know, I look at I look at this and I say wow this could be a 150 year project for Adventism to you know make those radical changes, go back to a, some adaptation of this idealized thing that I just presented, and then do this in every city? That's not a six-month thing. You know? uh, we all have a, a finite lifespan. I don't know if I'll ever last long enough to see it happen. But the final events will be rapid ones, and so you know, uh, who knows? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I will be stunned beyond belief to see what the Lord can accomplish in a short time. But anyhow, let's bow our heads to begin. Father, we, uh, we've read some challenging stuff, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to avoid the natural human reaction we can easily become fault-finding and critical it doesn't do anybody a bit of good so deliver us from that I pray but deliver us from just shrugging our shoulders and saying it'll never happen I pray that you'd be with us now help that something useful tangible practical will come especially from this last presentation Give us your wisdom and your guidance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Picking up the pieces. Learn the lessons. Get it right. Why is this important? <laughs> As religious teachers, we are under obligation to God to teach the students how to engage in medical missionary work. Okay. God's plan for finishing his work on earth is actually achievable. This plan requires the demonstration of God's selfless character by his people, largely through medical missionary work. 
opportunity to accomplish this was provided in a special sense a century ago when the Lord called for a new form of medical education to prepare, to prepare workers to form the nucleus of multifaceted companies using a wide range of evangelistic skills and techniques. We haven't fully documented that last one yet. Okay. That's part of what we'll be going through now. Now, when I say company, that does not mean a legal corporation type of company. It means a, a group or a body of, of workers. Okay. Hopefully, for those of you who've been here through three hours of this so far, that all makes sense. Okay. <clears throat> um, okay. I see what happened. I'm going to have to interrupt myself because I must have one screen here that got marked do not display and I wanted to display it. Uh-oh, where'd it go? Uh, something's out of order. We'll go back to where we were. Uh, click, 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 click. Okay. Um, this is disconcerting. Six, five. I need page five. I'm sorry. I may have to do this just orally. I got it printed, but... Somehow it's not here now. Okay, we're going to have to just do some things orally for a moment. I'm not sure why that happened. Um, <clears throat> in order to accomplish the kind of things we've been talking about, Ellen White says there needs to be a decided change. Okay, this is this is one of the influences within Adventism that is, is traceable to a very, very specific occurrence, February 27, 1910, okay? And I, I wish I could have this up on the screen for you. Somehow it got moved or something in my file. I'm not sure what happened. During the night of February 27, 1910, the unworked cities were represented before me as a living reality, and I was plainly instructed that there should be a decided change from past methods of working. Got to change it. Decided change from past methods of working. For months, the situation has been impressed on my mind, and I urge that companies be organized and diligently trained to labor in our important cities. Okay, it's from that statement and from that vision that is what we're talking about now. Okay, this decided change. And it's from that statement, she said, organize companies. Okay, and from that, we have a term that I'm going to be using, and I'm just trying to introduce it to you now. It's company evangelism. Okay. Company, a group of people working together through multiple facets, multiple avenues, as a as a body, an evangelistic group body, you know, come in and attack a city, you know, for the Lord, okay, type of thing. Um, okay, so then we had the basic points which we already had. We're going to pick up um, if we back up one. Okay, down at the bottom here. <clears throat> 
multiple, multifaceted, wide range of evangelistic skills and techniques. There we go. We're going to be looking at some of these different skills and techniques, these multiple facets of this work, and, and just looking at them, how they developed historically, and, and learning lessons from that. Okay. So we're going to start with vegetarian restaurants. Okay. The whole concept of a vegetarian restaurant started in 1877. What happened is that, uh, what was his name, Phineas Barnum? Phineas, is that right? Anyhow, P.T. Barnum brought the circus to Battle Creek. And the saints in Battle Creek said, uh, this is not good because all the people from around town, or around town the whole county, they're all going to come and they're all going to hit the saloon. They're all going to be drunk, and it's going to be a mess around here. So they went downtown, they put up a couple of tents, and they served meals. Hygienic meals. Hygienic being the term of the day for vegetarian. Okay? They served good vegetarian food, and they had good things to drink, and the people loved it. And they got all sorts of commendations and, and, and praise and whatnot. Yours is the best food in the place. It's a great thing. And Ellen White remembered that and she said, wow, that was one day. What if we did that for a restaurant? Well, it took a couple of decades before the idea really kind of kicked into action, okay? Um, <clears throat> she got back from Australia in September of 1900 up to that point, she'd made the occasional comment about vegetarian restaurants and things like this, and it had encouraged them. She came back, 1900, and began advocating them again, but quickly, fairly quickly, there was a sense of concern that cropped into her comments, or that came up in her comments. Um, <clears throat> this finally culminated in a speech that she gave to a group of health food workers, September 23, 1905. Things were not all good. Vegetarian restaurants had been taking young people away from more specifically evangelistic lines of work. She said, why is there such a dearth of laborers in these important lines of work? Our young people choose to labor in some place where they can live without any particular exercise of their minds spiritually. The restaurants offer a free field for such individuals. This is not good. If you're going to do the Lord's work, it needs to be the Lord's work. There's always going to be somebody out there who doesn't really want to break ties with cultural Adventism. They don't want to make their parents mad by going off and working for the world, but they're not really interested in serving the Lord. And if you offer, offer something, in this case, vegetarian restaurant, where I'm working in the church's restaurant, but I'm not doing a thing for the church, you got a disaster on your hands. Hot. You know, warning button here, you know. Summer call porter programs. There have been really good ones. There have been others that have been something of a disaster. A lot depends on the leadership, okay? If you're a parent and you're going to send a kid on one of those call porter programs, I would suggest by all possible means you find out what you're sending your kid into before you do it, okay? Some of them are fantastic. I could give you names, but I won't, okay? Wouldn't be that helpful. Okay. Um, <clears throat> even mission trips, you know? You can go on a mission trip that has wonderful stated intentions, and yet the atmosphere of it can be unfortunate. Okay. Vegetarian restaurants hadn't been looking out for their workers. 
Quotes, the managers of our restaurants are to work for the salvation of the employees. They are, devote, they are to devote their best powers to instructing their employees in spiritual lines, explaining the scriptures to them, and praying with them, and for them. They are to guard the religious interests of the helpers as carefully as parents are to guard the religious interests of their children. That hadn't happened. What had happened is that the managers of the restaurants had hired a bunch of 20-somethings. We'll pay you X, you know, so much an hour. It's a great opportunity to work for the Lord. And they paid him some money. And they left them to drift in this big city, whatever city it was. And they ended up getting some dingy apartment someplace because they weren't getting paid a lot of money. And now they're, you know, I'm living by myself in this apartment and I go work at this restaurant eight, ten hours a day, but what do I do the rest of the day? What do I do at night? What do I do in my spare time on the weekends? We lost a huge number of young people because of that that very thing. And Ellen White was not happy about that. Okay? <coughs> Unless our con restaurants are conducted in this way, the, the right way, it will be necessary to warn our people against sending their children to them as workers. The managers of our restaurants must do more to save the young people in their employ. Every one of them needs to be sheltered by home influences. A young person, I don't know who I have to address here, but you know, a teenager, an early 20-something, who wants to go out and their primary motivation is they're looking for freedom and independence. This is a disaster. Yeah. As missionary workers, we cannot provide that. It will ruin them spiritually. They need to be sheltered by home influences, she says. That's a serious thing to consider, okay? Um, if you're a young person, get those issues settled first, please. <laughs> and then go find a missionary opportunity and, and, and be useful, <laughs> okay? Uh, let's go on. Vegetarian restaurants have become too absorbed in their commercial success. She says, I have been making inquiry as to how many have been converted to the truth as a result of the work done by our restaurants. Can anyone inform me? As God's chosen people, our only work is to win souls and teach the gospel. But the restaurants are not doing this work. They never have done it. And they never can do it. Unless the workers are thoroughly converted to God. By 1905, she was not such a big fan of vegetarian restaurants anymore. That's of concern to me because I've got one that I hope to have open in a month. <laughs> so i got to get this right, okay? Um, going on. I do not say that all our restaurants should be closed. But as I have seen the situation, I have sometimes wished that circumstances would arise that would compel them to be closed. It seems almost an impossibility for us to place ourselves in such a position that the existing evils can be corrected. Ayouch. <laughs> okay? This is one of the things that happened that damaged city mission work 100 years ago. Okay? We already talked about this in our last session. One little quick aspect of this I want to cover more, though. As religious aggression subverts or, or undermines the liberties of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable con positions. For their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. And those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. 
there will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth. Now, notice the context. This is the subversion of religious liberty. Okay? This is a end-time context. When Sunday laws are cranking up, he says, you can save yourself a lot of grief by winning some friends, by knowing how to, you know, knowing disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. Okay? <clears throat> Why should that be done? <laughs> For their own sake, okay? That would technically be referred to as a word to the wise. <laughs> okay? For your own sake, there's some things you ought to learn. Maybe you already know them. That'd be good, too. I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines, but medical missionary work. Really? Well, that's what she says. What's that mean? Now, it's important that we have the broad view of medical missionary work. Okay? That's not saying that there's absolutely nothing going to be done in ministerial lines but tonsillectomies and appendectomies and, and, and dermatology and, you know, the more technical medical branches. Those are good things. But that's not what she's talking about here. Okay, she's talking about the broad scope of medical missionary work. Okay? Um, and there's not going to be anything, anything that doesn't fit into that category. <laughs> that's what she says. Okay? Now... Let, uh, um, well, let's see. Let me make a comment first. We're not all doctors. We're not all nurses. Okay? Medical missionary work, you know, really that can't be for everyone, can it? Well, if we have the narrow view of medical missionary work, then we're forced to that opinion. But fortunately, we don't have to have. We have, we have this broad view. And I want to just kind of document this for you. So we're going to go through the who of this. Okay? Let our ministers, who have gained an experience in preaching the word, learn how to give simple treatments. And then labor intelligently as medical missionary evangelists. Okay? Who are we talking about? Ministers. Okay, good. All gospel workers should know how to give the simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease. Who are we talking about? Gospel workers. In every place, the sick may be found, and those who go forth as workers for Christ should be true health reformers, prepared to give those who are sick the simple treatments that will relieve them, and then pray with them. Thus they will open the door for the entrance of the truth. Who are we talking about? Workers for Christ. As the canvasser goes from place to place, he will find many who are sick. He should have a practical knowledge of the causes of disease and should understand how to give the simple treatments that he may relieve the suffering ones. What are we talking about? The canvasser. Anybody do a summer mega book program? That's, those are great things. I mean, provided you know, you're in a good environment and all the rest and you have a, a good team going. It's a great thing. We've never yet tapped, tapped the level of, of usefulness that we get and, and, unless they actually taught you how to give simple treatments before they sent you out selling books. You know? There's a level there that we can explore. Okay? In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the Lord tells us plainly what the work is that He requires of us. In order that our young people may be fully prepared to do this work, small sanitariums are to be connected with our schools. The students are to be taught how to use nature's simple remedies in the treatment of disease. Who are we talking about? Students. students. Okay. God's people are to be genuine medical missionaries. 
They are to learn how to minister for the needs of soul and body. They should know how to give the simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease. Who are we talking about? Cuts people. So medical missionary work is not for you unless you happen to be a physician, a nurse, a minister, a canvasser, a gospel worker, or a church member, or a student or a church member, okay? If you fall in one of those categories, then med medical missionary work is for you, okay? <laughs> so if you fall outside of all those categories, then just relax. You don't need to worry about it, okay? Now, <laughs> and this is that broad kind of medical missionary work, you know? You do not have to know how to, you know, do massive skin transplants for burn victims. Hopefully somebody knows how to do that. Praise the Lord for that technical skill. But that's not what we're talking about here, okay? Okay. We've been talking about the who. Now we talk about the what. What did you, all those statements we just went through, did you notice anything about the what? Simple treatments. Every one of them specified simple treatments, okay? It's not rocket science. It's simple. That's why they call them that. You know how long it takes to teach somebody how to do a hot foot bath? Oh, approximately 30 seconds. <laughs> you know? It's not complicated. And you know what, though? A hot foot bath is the greatest of all hydrotherapy treatments. It really is. It's wonderful. It, it helps many times when there's no reason it should. I, I think the Lord simply honors you know, somebody who's willing to use the simple methods. You know, it's, it's like, have you ever read uh, the book Bruchko? Ever read that book? Bruce Olson went down to South America. You ever read that book? Oh. Bruchko, B-R-U-C-H-K-O. Find the book and read it. It's not an Adventist book, okay? And yeah, there are, you know, a few little flaky areas here and there about the state of the dead and some of that stuff. It's a great book, though. But anyhow, the point is, he went down there and he worked among the, uh, the Indians down in South America. And gradually, he managed to introduce them to some better systems of, of health care than witch doctors, okay? He did this kind of carefully so as to not offend the witch doctors and whatnot. But um, he had multiple cases where he'd be gone from the village and somebody'd get bitten by a snake that causes death in like 30 seconds. Mm. Or eh, maybe not. But you know, something, you know, a poisonous snake that's, that's generally fatal, okay? And, and these Indians, bless their hearts, you know, they said, well, we prayed and we gave him a shot. Well, what'd you give him? This bottle, <laughs> it wasn't anti-venom, it was like, you know, saline solution or something, you know, whatever, you know. And the Lord healed them anyhow, you know, I mean, you know, the Lord does things for people that don't know what they're doing, okay. Try a hot foot bath, okay. <laughs> Try a hot foot bath. In some simple case, a simple treatment could be a great thing. Okay, let's go on. Simple treatments. God's remedies are the simple agencies of nature that will not tax or debilitate the system through, the, through their powerful properties. Pure air and water, cleanliness, proper diet, purity of life, firm trust in God are remedies for the want of which thousands are dying. Yet these remedies are going out of date because their skillful use requires work that the people do not appreciate. That's a major hang-up with the simple remedies is they require time and effort. It's much easier, you know, and much quicker and much more dramatic in many cases to, you know, use 
a drug, scribble a prescription, you know, whatever. When you're doing a hot fever pack type of thing, you know, you got to be with that guy for the duration of the treatment. That's a real drawback. Unless you happen to be doing medical missionary work and you're looking for an opportunity to spend time with your patient when he can't leave and you can talk to him. It's a wonderful thing, okay? What's our motive? What's, what's, our, what's our goal? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to run patients through our, our office as fast as possible? Or are we out here winning souls? You know, there, there's, a, there's a place for this. It does require work, though. Okay. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not against modern medicine. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. It's just not the best tool for evangelism, okay? Uh, and let's keep some perspective on this. Ellen White uses the term simple treatments 41 times on the CD-ROM, right? Simple remedies shows up 78 times. That's quite a few. It's enough to take notice of. Let's keep it in perspective. The name Jesus shows up 37,308 times, okay? <laughs> you know, it's not the same as 41, 72, or whatever, okay. So, you know, don't make that your whole gospel. It's a tool of the gospel, okay? Why? Why this emphasis on simple treatments? In the last scenes of this earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. Okay, I'm going to toss out a guess. I don't, you know, I'm not inspired. So, it's a guess. Take it or leave it. Here's my guess. The Lord has many times through the spirit of prophecy linked simple treatments, simple methods, simple medical missionary work with the time of the end. Specifically, that was one we had a minute ago, you know, when they begin to subvert religious liberty. That's an end time scenario. I don't see that he would, you know, it doesn't make sense to me that he would emphasize simple treatments for the time of the end and then allow the time of the end to come and go with an environment that didn't allow for simple treatments to come and to come into play and be useful. Does that make sense? So here's my guess, and it's a guess. My guess is that the existing medical services will somehow be disrupted or overwhelmed. Okay? And all we will have at our disposal will be the simple treatments. That's all we'll have left under those circumstances. Could the medical system really, you know, could that happen? Well, hmm. Ever hear of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus? <laughs> I don't know if I pronounce all that right or not, but you know. <laughs> Doug, Doug would know. <laughs> it's, it's increasing. And they don't have any drugs to handle it anymore. That's the whole point. It's resistant. Okay? They're resorting to some cocktail approaches, you know, some of this and some of that and some of the other thing, and you know, but it's, it's becoming a problem. You've got extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis running around out there. It's a problem. If I understand this correctly, there are actually people that are essentially confined in solitary confinement for the rest of their life with super-duper ventilation systems in the hospital room because they don't want this getting out in the public because they, they don't have anything that stops it. Tuberculosis used to be the number one cause of death in this country. And they're not real excited about having that resume that title, okay? So they're trying to contain it. It could happen. It could get out, you know? 
adenovirus serotype 14 was something a few you know months ago was coming up got the avian flu we were all worried about a couple years ago right the h5n1 now we got the swine flu who knew you know we're all worried about the bird flu and now the pig flu gets us you know type of thing okay they don't know it just might happen you know so far if you're tracking you know this is it's it's eerily similar to 1918 where a new form of, of swine flu showed up in the spring, the cases were mild, it kind of drifted through the summer, and then in the fall it hit with a vengeance. And 40 million people died. Okay? Uh, is that going to happen again? I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But if it did, <laughs> trust me, the medical system would be overwhelmed very, very quickly. Quick aside for whatever it's worth. And I don't know what it's worth. But this one, this flu thing, really, you know, I grew up hearing stories from my grandfather who lived through that, okay? He was at Academy at the time. The place was shut down. He couldn't go on, he couldn't go off. He was stuck in the dormitory with 70 guys. They were all sick, basically. He and a buddy were the only guys in the dorm that were not throwing up or having diarrhea or, or all the other symptoms, okay? They lost people. He had to carry dead bodies out of that dorm room, okay? That was when he determined he was going to be a physician. Well, as fate would have it, it didn't work out. But that was his determination. They went through the whole period. They were up, you know, 24 hours a day type of thing, trying to take care of these 70 people. The dean was down, you know. And they, they didn't get sick until the whole thing was almost over. And then his buddy got it and died in a day, or two days or three days or something like that. You know, just boom, just took him away, you know. I grew up on that story. So the whole, the whole bird flu thing, you know, it's kind of, you know, that's one that I pay attention to. How many of you heard of Dennis Burkett? Yeah, the fiber guy, right? Dennis Burkett, British physician, okay? There's a, an, an Adventist wrote his biography. He wasn't an Adventist, but he was a, he was a great guy. He, he, he did some really good work. He was a medical missionary for whatever church. Uh, went to Africa, and he, he worked down there, okay? He had an uncle. Now, Dennis just died recently, okay? But his uncle was serving down in Kenya, I think it was, during the 1918 flu episode, okay? And in this book, you got to look it up. It might be worth somebody's life someday, okay? There's a little story about he went down to the same country, and he was passing through the same region, and he found a doctor who had worked with his uncle years before. And he had to stop off, because his uncle was a very colorful character, did lots of strange things, and he had to stop off and talk to this old guy and say, was my uncle really that weird of a guy? You know, I hear all these stories. How many of these things are true? And the doctor confirmed that they were all true, <laughs> that his uncle was a, was a character. Okay. But it's interesting. Burkett, the, the uncle, had gone to Africa with a little book on the treatment of fevers. Now, it would no longer pass muster as, as the best medical knowledge today. But this little book back in 1916, when he shipped out to Africa, it said simply, if a person has a fever, cool him off. <laughs> That's that was pretty basic. Cool him down, okay? And Burkett followed that advice. When the 1918 flu came through, he cooled everybody down. <laughs> he just cooled them down. He'd throw him in a bathtub with ice water. He was, he was, he was a little, uh, you know, less than tactful about this. He said, you, you have a fever, brother. <laughs> he would cool him down, you know. 
He didn't lose a single patient to that, bird, that, that flu in 1918. That's a, a credible, enviable record. Now, those, those flus, the, the H5N1, the H1N1, hasn't yet fully developed, you know, they're, they're following that one. But they, they act differently than other flus. They, they act in different parts of your lungs. They act at different body temperatures. There's, there's all sorts of things going on. Maybe, just maybe, throwing somebody in a cold bath could save their life someday. So just keep that in mind if this thing ever develops, okay? Any one of these things has the potential to completely swamp our existing healthcare system. And, and they could do that without the government's help. <laughs> and the government's trying to be helpful, I think. <laughs> there are probably other things that are just as bad, but you know, I don't want to alarm anyone, so let's go on, okay? Check this out. The study of surgery and other medical science receives much attention in the world, but the true science of medical missionary work carried forward as Christ carried it is new and strange to the denominational churches and to the world. But it will find its rightful place when, as a people who have had great light, Seventh-day Adventists awaken to their responsibilities and improve their opportunities. This is something different. I, I just want to really emphasize that. We're not talking about medical practice as heretofore developed. It is, what'd she say? New and strange. Right? What, what did you say? As Christ. Yeah, as Christ carried forward. Right, okay. It's, it's new and strange. She says, you know, when we do this, people are going to look at us and say, that is new, and it is strange. <laughs> you know? And if people aren't looking at our medical missionary work and saying, that is new, and that is strange, we're using the wrong tool. We're using a tool that you know, may get the job done, but it's not the optimal tool. You know? Have you ever turned a, a screw with a, with a kitchen knife? Makes your wife really mad. You know, you bend the knife a lot. <laughs> you, know? you can turn screws with kitchen knives. I've done it. Ask my wife, you know. It's not the right tool, though. Get yourself a screwdriver, <laughs> okay? Another category. Well, let's see. Um, okay. <clears throat> Another category that has not been used. Remember the title here? Picking up the pieces. What, what, what was it that the Lord was kicking around 100 years ago that we could still save and use today? Another category is company evangelism. That's why I mentioned that before, the, the company, a group of people, and it's an evangelistic team, okay? Okay, now we get to the statement that I want. How did that end up on page five? Something's very funny here, but that's okay. This, um, this is the one that comes from a very specific vision. Here we go. During the night of February 27, 1910, the unworked cities were represented before me as a living reality, and I was plainly instructed that there should be a decided change from past methods of working. For months, the situation has been impressed on my mind, and I urge that companies be organized and diligently trained to labor in our important cities. Okay, this is the vision that started what I would call the slowest change in Adventist history. We haven't made the change yet, okay? It's a very slow change. I'm a little cynical, but here's the story. Follow this. After this vision, Ellen White put the responsibility for this decided change on the shoulders of the most trustworthy man she knew. Who was that? John Burden. Right? Okay, anybody here from, you know, down Loma Linda, Advent Hope or anything, right? You know, Burden Hall? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's named for him, okay? She comes to John Burden 
and the other leaders of the College of Medical Evangelists at the time. That would have been like R.S. Owen, whom she said was the best Bible teacher in the denomination. It's a good recommendation. G.B. Starr, another man she held in, in high esteem, right? Maybe one or two others. I don't know of any others. Those are the names that I know. She came to them and she said, I had this vision, February 27, 1910, company evangelism, brethren. I'm putting this on your shoulders. You are responsible before God to see this thing flies. Yeah. Well, they did what committees always do. Anybody worked on a committee long enough to know what you do? Talk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, once we move past that stage, <laughs> you delegate. <laughs> you know, committee can't do anything. They can talk. Yeah. Okay, so they delegated. Okay? They said, we have to find somebody to make this ball roll. Let me tell you something about balls. They don't roll unless somebody keeps kicking them. Okay? We've got to find somebody who's going to kick this ball and make it go. And they looked around and they said, hmm, who should we find? Who should we call to do this? The man they picked was a fairly recent Adventist. He was, fairly recently became an Adventist. He was a former newspaper publisher. That was a useful skill to him later on. He had been a law student. I don't know how far he got in that. And, at the time of his conversion, he was a gold prospector, <laughs> okay? In 1907, he'd been converted out in the gold mining fields, reading Desire of Ages, okay? Immediately, or thereabouts, he came back, studied into Adventism a little bit, got himself baptized, and in 1908, he signs up for the medical missionary course at the College of Medical Evangelists. He says, this is where it's at. He was a smart man. So, by 1910, he was about ready to graduate. And so the brethren said, he's our man. And here he is. John H. N. Tyndall. Now, curiosity question. How many of you have even heard this man's name before? Really? Nice job. Okay. He, he's had a, he published a few books. He wrote a few books. They're kicking around out there. You can find them. Okay. Boy, that's so dark. Why is it dark? Okay. He looks a little, you know... A little more pleasant than that, <laughs> when it's not quite so dark. Okay. John Tyndall is the one who pioneered gospel medical missionary evangelism. He did this in California, Indiana, Virginia, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, and Texas. Okay. Elder Tyndall combined medical education with his gospel presentations, even though he wasn't a doctor. That's what he had been trained to do. Where did he learn to do that, you ask? Well, some little school in Southern California that when he enrolled in 1908 was following this council. Loma Linda is to be not only a sanitarium but an educational center for the training of gospel medical missionary evangelists. Gospel medical missionary evangelists. He graduated from the medical missionary course. Of course that's what he would do. Well, <clears throat> he was successful. But there was something still missing from his work. He worked for a number of years. The 1910 vision had called for the formation of companies of evangelists. And he didn't do that at first. He was an evangelist holding evangelistic meetings, but trying to interest people with health information. It's good. It worked. Okay? 
It took a couple of years for him to figure out the whole company aspect of things. But when he did figure it out and added that new dimension to his work, it showed up big time, okay? For the five campaigns, the last five campaigns before he incorporated the company element into his evangelism, Elder Tindall's work had been successful. He was averaging 36 baptisms per campaign. That's not shabby. I, can, I, I know a lot of evangelists would be happy with that. 36 baptisms per campaign. And then he made this switch and he said, let's try this company thing. The next six campaigns, his average was 121 baptisms. That's significant. 121 baptisms. Somebody was doing something right. Gospel, medical, missionary, company evangelism. <laughs> okay? Well, uh, how did he get such good results? What, what sort of company did he have? Well, here we go. There was Elder Tyndall. One medical helper. I have no idea what that qualifications were. One Bible worker. Those were the paid positions. He also had one businessman, one singer, six nurses, and ten unspecified volunteers. These were the unpaid volunteers, including the businessman, the singer, the six nurses. They were, they were just volunteering. The ten guys on the bottom, I don't know what they did. Uh, maybe they, you know, took up offerings or something, you know, handed out papers. I, I don't know what their skills were. I have no idea. Okay. But he had, let's see, 10, 16, 17, 18. He had 18 volunteers in his company and three paid workers. And the three salaries were what supported them. Okay. They were living simply. Okay. In 1923, Elder Tyndall returned to the College of Medical Evangelists to study dietetics. He'd had some people challenging him. He was actually hauled into court at one point. Uh, the parents of some convert were, hauled him into court and said, this man has taught our son to be a vegetarian and he's endangering his life. <laughs> and they sued him. We'll finish that story later, because that comes a little bit after this, but I'll have to introduce one more thing before I tell you what happened to that. 1923, he goes back to Loma Linda, and he, he signs up for a two-year dietetics course. Not everyone saw value in that. Okay? This is the story as he told it in 1928. He said, while at Loma Linda, taking my training in dietetics, I had a very prominent man of our denomination say to me, John, what are you doing here? What do you expect to do studying dietetics? Do you think it right to leave your great work as an evangelist and come here and spend all this time studying dietetics? In reply to my good friend, I said, time will show the wisdom of my plan, brother. Did you ever read in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 112, quotes, there are some who think that the question of diet is not of sufficient importance to be included in your evangelistic work, but such make a great mistake. John latched onto that and said, I'm going to study dietetics. And so he did. And it worked. Did even better. Well, he graduated in 1925 from the dietetics course, along with um, these nice people. There we go. That's the graduating class of dietetics, 1925. More important to our study for the moment, though, is the fact that he'd returned to CME in 1923. 
1923 happened to be the last year that the medical missionary course was offered. Oh well. As it happened, there was a 17-year-old who should not have been accepted into anything in the college. He was too young. He'd been homeschooled for that matter too. He didn't have a high school diploma, but somehow he managed to get his way into the medical missionary course. He did not know it was going to be the last time it was offered. But he was forever thankful after that that he got in. And as he was taking his medical missionary course and John Tyndall was taking his dietetics course, the two of them both ended up in a chemistry class and they ended up being lab partners. The young guy and the older guy working together in the chemistry lab, okay? <coughs> he made, this, this young guy made a favorable impression on Tyndall. Well, in 1927, two years after he graduated from dietetics, Tyndall was called to the California Conference. There was only one California Conference back then. He was told to select any conference worker he wanted to be his assistant in establishing a school to teach gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism. Pick anybody you want. So Tyndall says, this is the guy I want, my lab partner. He's now 21 years old. Very young. The conference president said, uh-uh, pick a real worker. And Tyndall said, he's the one I want. And the conference president said, uh-uh, ain't going to happen. And Tyndall said, he's the one I want. I want somebody I can train from scratch. It's so much easier starting when they're young than you get somebody in here who already thinks they know what they're supposed to do. Give me that man. And so they did. Now, it worked out nicely because it was just shortly after that that this lawsuit came up. And that young man was Tyndall's Exhibit A because he'd been raised vegetarian from birth. And he stood him up in court and said, this guy's alive. <laughs> He's doing okay. <laughs> the case was dismissed, and the parents of the young man who had sued had to pay all court costs, which is, of course, what should be done with lawsuit liability courts. But, you know, anyhow, um, that's a political issue. We'll skip that. The young man, you may have heard of him. Um, here's a picture. Anybody recognize him? This is W.D. Frizee. He was the young man. The last year of CME's medical missionary course. And the Lord worked it out for him as 17 years old to get in. He was forever thankful for that. Obviously, this picture's not when he was 17. <laughs> Frizee worked with Tyndall for five years directly, a little more indirectly for another five years after that. Um, when Frizee was called to Utah to form his own company of workers, the Depression forced him to rely even more heavily on volunteers than Tyndall did. Eventually, both the Field School of Medical Evangelism and formal Gospel Medical Missionary Company Evangelism both died out in the late 1930s, partially from the Depression, lack of funding and whatnot and the other. The programs were all killed. And Frizee was just kind of left adrift, so to speak. A couple years later, 1942, he came to a conclusion. He said, gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism will never succeed if there's not at least one school that's teaching it. And there weren't any at that point that were emphasizing it. So he said, 
I need to start a school. And that was Wildwood. That's where that came from. With all due respect to W.D. Frizee, he was not preeminently successful in, in training gospel medical missionary company evangelists. I know of only two that he actually turned out. It took a long time. The first person that I know of, there might have been others, in you know, some small way at least, you know, their history has escaped me, but the first person that I know of coming out of Wildwood that actually pursued gospel, medical, missionary, company evangelism wasn't until the late 1960s. It's a long time from 42 to 68, I think it was. There was a young man, he was a pastor, young pastor, he'd come down to George area, worked with Frizee, Frizee sold him on this idea, and somehow or the other, they put together something up in southern New England. And he went up there, this pastor and his wife, and in a number of years there, they formed three different evangelistic teams from 17 to 19 workers, all working on three and a half salaries. You may recognize this guy. Oops. Ooh, that's a nasty looking picture. Boy, what's going on with my graphics? Recognize him? Marcantini. That's where he, he got his start. Gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism. And you know the concern of his family and friends was that going that route would possibly destroy his denominational career. And he's vice president of GC. He's done okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> During the years in southern New England, Mark trained this gentleman. Not as famous. You might not recognize him. His name is Brad Thorpe. He's currently the co-director of the Hope Channel, the church's, you know, satellite dish thingy. Whatever. Okay, he and Gary Gibbs, co-directors. Okay. Brad worked with Mark. Frizee had sent him up too. That's the two, Mark and Brad. Only two that I know of that Frizee managed to train. But praise the Lord, he kept he kept the the vision alive. Okay, and these two young men. Okay. Back in those days, Brad was a young man from British Columbia, Canada, west coast of Canada. He worked with Pastor Finley in southern New England, then he went back to Andrews, finished up a degree, something other. Brad eventually came up to the, the Vancouver area and with a, a couple of other pastors that he recruited up there and their salaries, <laughs> he started a gospel medical missionary company evangelism team. He had about 10 to 12 members. This was known as Radiant Living Seminars. It lasted from 1978 to 1983. Now, this is of interest to me. The Thorpe family happened to be old family friends of my wife, who's from British Columbia. And actually, in 1982, Brad was kind enough to sign a piece of paper that uh, legally got me married. So that was, that was nice, okay? Their program folded in 83 in Vancouver because Brad went back and joined Mark in running for just like a year, maybe it was two or something like that, what was known as the Lake Union Soul Winning Institute outside of Chicago. It was an effort to try and, and take gospel, medical, missionary, company evangelism and tie it in with the seminary. And it wasn't preeminently successful, but that's, that's where he went. He and Mark went back to working together in Chicago. And Radiant Living just kind of died. And it just laid there, the thought, for 20-some years until three guys landed in Vancouver. Fresh out of, yeah, I heard it. Fresh out of, you know, Mission College, they wanted to do evangelism. Somebody, I don't know who it was, somebody remembered Radiant Living Seminars. 
right? And so these guys, hello. Oh, graphics are bad today. <laughs> these guys, Yamil, Jeffrey, and Jay, Rosario, started up Radiant Living, which has now been translated to, was it San Jose? Is that where they're at? Somebody, yeah, keep up with it, okay. This dream has been kept alive. It's not dead yet, okay? But there's always been something missing in what they've done. All of them, Tyndall, Frizee, Mark, Brad, Rosarios, they're all lacking one thing, still. And that is, the Lord desires the city shall be worked by the united efforts of laborers of different capabilities, all that are looked to Jesus for their direction, not depending on man for wisdom, lest they be led astray. There should be companies organized and educated most thoroughly to work as nurses, as evangelists, as ministers, as canvassers, as gospel students to perfect the character after the divine similitude. The idea is a multifaceted, broad-based operation. Now, they've, they've managed to get some of that in. What they never had was the more permanent fixtures in town that Ellen White calls centers of influence. Your health food stores, your treatment rooms, your vegetarian <laughs> restaurants. Um, they never had that advantage, okay? That would limit their ability to contact a wide range of people in a neutral setting, you know? It's like, if you're just doing evangelism, you got to go out and knock on doors and, you know, whatever, okay? If you're doing a vegetarian restaurant, people come walking in. It's kind of a no-pressure type of setting, okay? All these different parts of this work, Ellen White says, they, they, they all work for the same cause. They're all working the united efforts, okay? Co-porters, canvassers. Yeah, you know, you try to sell a book, that doesn't work, you drop down to a happy D, you know, okay, type of thing. They, they, they buy a happy D, and you give them, oh, here's something for you. It's a 50% off coupon to the restaurant. <laughs> or something, you know? If you get the, the canvassers can support the, the restaurant, the Bible workers. The Bible workers can work as waiters and waitresses in the restaurant. It's like Bible worker ambush time type of thing, you know? <laughs> People come walking into the restaurant and there's nothing but six Bible workers standing here. <laughs> We're going to eat this guy for lunch. <laughs> uh, you can get this kind of stuff going on, right? The restaurant serves as a feeder for the wellness center out of town. They didn't have all that, okay? The whole is more than the sum of its parts. That's the ideal, okay? That's what I have the blessed privilege of being involved with in, in Wichita right now. And hopefully it's all coming online within about a month and a half. The restaurant, the health food store, the, the bakery, the culinary school um, in town, okay? The wellness center 65 miles out of town the Bible worker outpost which we've not yet found but I've got a Bible worker already living in my house a volunteer Bible worker with no pay who's living in my house because I don't have the outpost center yet but the Lord has said we have to have it so it's up to him to provide it it's gonna to have to happen pretty soon right Shrod? <laughs> okay um, these things can be done we have not half faith enough. Why do we not act as though we had a thousand, thousands of dollars and move forward, she said. They can be done. This dream is not yet dead. And now we get to end on a happy note. Where does it all end? Where will it all end? 
God has given us a commission which angels might envy. You know what? If Gabriel had the chance, he would trade places with you. Do you know that? He would accept all of your liabilities and hardships and problems because you are one of the precious few who's the only spot in, in the universe where souls are being saved. You can work a kind of soul saving that the angels never have the chance. They would, they would die for that. No, just figuratively speaking. Okay? God has given us a commission that angels might envy. The church has been charged to convey to the world without delay God's saving grace. Excuse me, saving mercy. This is the trust that He has given to us, and it is to be faithfully executed. Medical missionary work is to be done. Thousands upon thousands of human beings are perishing in sin. The compassion of God is moved. All heaven is looking on with intense interest to see what character medical missionary work will assume under supervision of human beings. Will men make merchandise of God's ordained plan for reaching the dark parts of the earth with the manifestation of His benevolence? Will they cover mercy with selfishness and then call it medical missionary work? I pray not. Look at these two statements. Why don't we put these together? Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of Himself in His church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to claim them as His own. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within. What is, what is Christ waiting for with longing desire? He's waiting for people to just love being helpful. <laughs> to help and bless others. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. There is no change in the messages that God has sent in the past. The work in the cities is the essential work for this time. When the cities are worked as God would have them, the result will be the setting in operation of a mighty movement such as we have not yet witnessed. In context, that's the loud cry. That's the latter rain. The cities like Jericho, are blocking our entrance to the Promised Land. Do you want to see the Lord come? Yeah? Don't get me wrong. I'm sure that there's, the Lord calls people to different things. Yeah? But many of our brethren must stand condemned because they've not done the very work which God has been calling them to. I am blessed that I know my calling at this point in time. Amen. There is to be a working of our cities as they never have been worked. That which should have been done, and I put this in, 120, yes, more than 120 years ago, is now to be done speedily. The work will be more difficult to do now than it would have been years ago, but it will be done. It has to be done. You know, I, sometimes I just kind of gulp. You know, it's like, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Jesus is coming soon. It, it might be next Wednesday. It's not next Wednesday. <laughs> Every city on earth needs to be warned, folks. It's not happening in between now and next Wednesday. Let's stop living in fantasy land. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. 
That's what medical missionary work does. The glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's my new favorite statement. I like it. It will be done. And all of that leaves one simple question. Are you willing to be one of those streams? Well, it'll be looked upon as new and strange. That's new. It's strange. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> we have much to learn from the history. There's a lot. Ellen White wrote tons about this 100 years ago because it came close 100 years ago. You know, I'm not here to fault those who didn't carry it through 100 years ago. I think they made mistakes. Praise the Lord for what they did, how close they got, the counsel that it called forth. It gives me something to work with today. Okay? And so, oh, I'm way past time. It's time to close. Um, I have wanted to resist turning all of this into a commercial. Uh, and so we'll close this meeting. But I'll make one quick announcement when we're done. <laughs> Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for challenges. It gives us something to live for. We thank you for direction and instruction. It gives us some way to structure our living for. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to take these things and, and find practical ways. Help us figure out how to manifest the character of Christ. Whatever it may be, however simple it may be, in our personal setting, give us a burden to do that, I pray. And bless us, provide our needs, and work through us to hasten your coming, we ask in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.